Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 2 The Scarlet Citadel, Part 1. They trapped the lion on Shamu's plane. They weighted his limbs with an iron chain. They cried aloud in the trumpet blast. They cried, the lion is caged at last. Woe to the cities of river and plain. If ever the lion stalks again. Old ballad. The roar of battle had died away. The shout of victory mingled with the cries of the dying. Like gay-hued leaves after an autumn storm, the fallen littered the plain. The sinking sun shimmered on burnished helmets, gilt-worked mail, silver breastplates, broken swords, and the heavy regal folds of silken standards, overthrown in pools of curdling crimson. In silent heaps lay war horses and their steel-clad riders, flowing manes and blowing plumes, stained alike in the red tide. About them and among them, like the drift of a storm, were strewn slashed and trampled bodies in steel caps and leather jerkins. Archers and pikemen, the olifants sounded a fanfare of triumph all over the plain, and the hooves of the victors crunched in the breasts of the vanquished, as all the straggling shining lines converged inward like the spokes of a glittering wheel, to the spot where the last survivor still waged unequal strife. That day, Conan, king of Aquilonia, had seen the pick of his chivalry cut to pieces, smashed and hammered to bits, and swept into eternity. With five thousand knights, he had crossed the southeastern border of Aquilonia and ridden into the grassy meadowlands of Ophir to find his former ally, King Amalrus of Ophir, drawn up against him with the hosts of Strabonus, King of Koth. Too late he had seen the trap. All that a man might do, he had done with his five thousand cavalrymen against the thirty thousand knights, archers and spearmen of the conspirators. Without bowmen or infantry, he had hurled his armoured horsemen against the oncoming host, had seen the knights of his foes in their shining mail go down before his lances, had torn the opposing centre to bits, driving the riven ranks headlong before him, only to find himself caught in a vise as the untouched wings closed in. Strabonus's Shemitish bowmen had wrought havoc among his knights, feathering them with shafts that found every crevice in their armour, shooting down the horses, the Kothian pikemen rushing in to spear the fallen riders. The mailed lancers of the routed centre had reformed, reinforced by the riders from the wings, and had charged again and again, sweeping the field by sheer weight of numbers. The Aquilonians had not fled, they had died on the field, and of the five thousand knights who had followed Conan southward, not one left the field alive. And now the king himself stood at bay among the slashed bodies of his house troops, his back against a heap of dead horses and men. Ophirian knights in gilded mail leapt their horses over mounds of corpses to slash at the solitary figure. Squat Shemites with blue-black beards and dark-faced Cothian knights ringed him on foot. The clangor of steel rose deafeningly. The black-mailed figure of the western king loomed among his swarming foes, dealing blows like a butcher wielding a great cleaver. Riderless horses raced down the field. About his iron-clad feet grew a ring of mangled corpses. His attackers drew back from his desperate savagery, panting and livid. 
Now, through the yelling, cursing lines, rode the lords of the conquerors Strabonus, with his broad, dark face and crafty eyes. Amalrus, slender, fastidious, treacherous, dangerous as a cobra, and the lean vulture, Sophilante, clad only in silken robes, his great black eyes glittering from a face that was like that of a bird of prey. Of this, Cothian wizard dark tales were told. Tousle-headed women in northern and western villages frightened children with his name, and rebellious slaves were brought to a base submission quicker than by the lash, with threat of being sold to him. Men said that he had a whole library of dark works, bound in skin flayed from living human victims, and that in nameless pits below the hill, whereon his palace sat, he trafficked with the powers of darkness, trading screaming girls' slaves for unholy secrets. He was the real ruler of Koth. Now he grinned bleakly, as the kings reined back a safe distance from the grim, iron-clad figure looming among the dead, before the savage blue eyes blazing murderously from beneath the crested, dented helmet, the boldest trank. Conan's dark, scarred face was darker yet with passion. His black armor was hacked to tatters and splashed with blood, his great sword red to the crosspiece. In this dress, all the veneer of civilization had faded. It was a barbarian who faced his conquerors. Conan was a Cimmerian by birth, one of those fierce, moody hillmen who dwelt in their gloomy, cloudy land in the north. His saga, which had led him to the throne of Aquilonia, was the basis of a whole cycle of hero tales. So now the kings kept their distance, and Strabonus called on his Shemitish archers to loose their arrows at his foe from a distance. His captains had fallen like ripe grain before the Cimmerian's broadsword, and Strabonus, penurious of his knights as of his coins, was frothing with fury. But Sotha shook his head. Take him alive. Easy to say, snarled Strabonus, uneasy lest in some way the black-mailed giant might hew a path to them through the spears. Who can take a man-eating tiger alive? By Ishtar, his heel is on the necks of my finest swordsmen. It took seven years and stacks of gold to train each, and there they lie, so much kites meet, arrows, I say. Again, nay, snapped Sotha, swinging down from his horse. He laughed coldly. Have you not learned by this time that my brain is mightier than any sword? He passed through the lines of the pikemen, and the giants in their steel caps and male brigandines shrank back fearfully, lest they so much as touch the skirts of his robe, nor were the plumed knights slower in making room for him. He stepped over the corpses and came face to face with the grim king. The hosts watched in tense silence, holding their breath. The black-armoured figure loomed in terrible menace over the lean, silk-robed shape, the notched, dripping sword hovering on high. I offer you life, Conan, said Sotha, a cruel mirth bubbling at the back of his voice. I give you death, wizard, snarled the king, and backed by iron muscles and ferocious hate, the great sword swung in a stroke, meant to shear Sotha's lean torso in half. But even as the hosts cried out, the wizard stepped in, too quick for the eye to follow, and apparently merely laid an open hand on Conan's left forearm, from the ridged muscles of which the mail had been hacked away. The whistling blade veered from its arc, and the mailed giant crashed heavily to earth, to lie motionless. Sotha laughed silently. Take him up and fear not. The lion's fangs are drawn. The kings reined in and gazed in awe at the fallen lion. Conan lay stiffly like a dead man. 
but his eyes glared up at them wide open and blazing with helpless fury. What have you done to him? asked Amalrus uneasily. Sotha displayed a broad ring of curious design on his finger. He pressed his fingers together, and on the inner side of the ring, a tiny steel fang darted out like a snake's tongue. It is steeped in the juice of the purple lotus which grows in the ghost-haunted swamps of southern Stygia, said the magician. Its touch produces temporary paralysis. Put him in chains and lay him in a chariot. The sun sets, and it is time we were on the road for Korshemish. Strabonus turned to his general Arbanus. We return to Korshemish with the wounded. Only a troop of the royal cavalry will accompany us. Your orders are to march at dawn to the Aquilonian border and invest the city of Shama. The Ophirians will supply you with food along the march. We will rejoin you as soon as possible with reinforcements. So the host, with its steel-sheathed knights, its pikemen and archers and camp servants, went into camp in the Medellins near the battlefield. And through the starry night, the two kings and the sorcerer, who was greater than any king, rode to the capital of Strabonus, in the midst of the glittering palace troop, and accompanied by a long line of chariots, loaded with the wounded. In one of these chariots lay Conan, king of Aquilonia, weighted with chains, the tang of defeat in his mouth, the blind fury of a trapped tiger in his soul. The poison which had frozen his mighty limbs to helplessness had not paralyzed his brain. As the chariot in which he lay rumbled over the Meadowlands, his mind revolved maddeningly about his defeat. Amalrus had sent an emissary imploring aid against Strabonus, who, he said, was ravaging his western domain, which lay like a tapering wedge between the border of Aquilonia and the vast southern kingdom of Koth. He asked only a thousand horsemen and the presence of Conan to hearten his demoralized subjects. Conan are mentally blasphemed. In his generosity, he had come with five times the number the treacherous monarch had asked. In good faith, he had ridden into Ophir and had been confronted by the supposed rivals allied against him. It spoke significantly of his prowess that they had brought up a whole host to trap him and his five thousand. A red cloud veiled his vision. His veins swelled with fury, and in his temples a pulse throbbed maddeningly. In all his life he had never known greater and more helpless wrath. In swift moving scenes the pageant of his life passed fleetingly before his mental eye, a panorama wherein moved shadowy figures which were himself in many guises and conditions, a skin-clad barbarian, a mercenary swordsman in horned helmet and scale mail corselet, a corsair in a dragon-proud galley that trailed crimson wake of blood and pillage along southern coasts, a captain of hosts in burnished steel on a rearing black charger, a king on a golden throne with a lion banner flowing above, and throngs of gay-hued courtiers and ladies on their knees. But always the jouncing and rumbling of the chariot brought his thoughts back to revolve with maddening monotony about the treachery of Amalrus and the sorcery of Totha. The veins nearly burst in his temples and cries of the wounded in the chariots filled him with ferocious satisfaction. Before midnight they crossed the Ophirian border, and at dawn the spires of Korshemish stood up gleaming and rose tinted on the southeastern horizon, the slim towers overawed by the grim scarlet citadel that at a distance was like a splash of bright blood in the sky. That was the castle of Sotha, only one narrow street paved with marble and guarded by heavy iron gates, led up to it where it crowned the hill dominating the city. 
The sides of that hill were too sheer to be climbed elsewhere. From the walls of the citadel, one could look down on the broad white streets of the city, on minareted mosques, shops, temples, mansions and markets. One could look down, too, on the palaces of the king, set in broad gardens, high-walled, luxurious riots of fruit trees and blossoms, through which artificial streams murmured and silvery fountains rippled incessantly. Overall brooded the citadel, like a condor stooping above its prey, intent on its own dark meditations. The mighty gates between the huge towers of the outer wall clanged open, and the king rode into his capital between lines of glittering spearmen, while fifty trumpets pealed salute. But no throngs swarmed the white-paved streets to fling roses before the conqueror's hooves. Strabonus had raced ahead of news of the battle, and the people, just rousing to the occupations of the day, kicked to see their king returning with a small retinue, and were in doubt as to whether it portended victory or defeat. Conan, life sluggishly moving in his veins again, craned his neck from the chariot floor to view the wonders of this city, which men called the Queen of the South. He had thought to ride some day through these golden chased gates, at the head of his steel-clad squadrons, with the great lion banner flowing over his helmeted head. Instead, he entered in chains, stripped of his armor, and thrown like a captive slave on the bronze floor of his conqueror's chariot. A wayward devilish mirth of mockery rose above his fury, but to the nervous soldiers who drove the chariot his laughter sounded like the muttering of a rousing lion. Gleaming shell of an outworn lie, fable of right divine. You gained your crowns by heritage, but blood was the price of mine. The throne that I won by blood and sweat by crumb I will not sell. For promise of valleys filled with gold, or threat of the halls of hell. The Road of Kings In the citadel, in a chamber with a domed ceiling of carven jet, and the fretted arches of doorways glimmering with strange dark jewels, a strange conclave came to pass. Conan of Aquilonia, blood from unbandaged wounds caking his huge limbs, faced his captors. On either side of him stood a dozen black giants grasping their long-shafted axes. In front of him stood Sotha, and on divans lounged Drabonus and Amalrus in their silks and gold, gleaming with jewels, naked slave boys beside them pouring wine into cups carved of a single sapphire. In strong contrast stood Conan, grim, blood-stained, naked but for a loincloth, shackles on his mighty limbs, his blue eyes blazing beneath the tangled black mane which fell over his low, broad forehead. He dominated the scene, turning to tinsel the pomp of the conquerors by the sheer vitality of his elemental personality, and the kings in their pride and splendor were aware of it each in his secret heart, and were not at ease. Only Sotha was not disturbed. Our desires are quickly spoken, king of Aquilonia, said Sotha. It is our wish to extend our empire. And so you want to swine my kingdom, rasped Conan. What are you but an adventurer? seizing a crown to which you had no more claim than any other wandering barbarian, parried Amorous. We are prepared to offer you suitable compensation. Compensation. It was a gust of deep laughter from Conan's mighty chest, the price of infamy and treachery. I am a barbarian, so I shall sell my kingdom and its people for life and your filthy gold. Ha! How did you come to your crown? You and that black-faced pig beside you. 
Your fathers did the fighting and the suffering, and handed their crowns to you on golden platters, what you inherited without lifting a finger, except to poison a few brothers. I fought for. You sit on satin and guzzle wine the people sweat for and talk of divine rights of sovereignty. Ah, I climbed out of the abyss of naked barbarism to the throne, and in that climb I spilt my blood as freely as I spilt that of others. If either of us has the right to rule men, by Chrome, it is I. How have you proved yourselves my superiors? I found Aquilonia in the grip of a pig like you, one who traced his genealogy for a thousand years. The land was torn with the wars of the barons, and the people cried out under oppression and taxation. Today no Aquilonian noble dares maltreat the humblest of my subjects, and the taxes of the people are lighter than anywhere else in the world. What of you, your brother, Amalrus, holds the eastern half of your kingdom and defies you, and you, Strabonus, your soldiers are even now besieging castles of a dozen or more rebellious barons. The people of both your kingdoms are crushed into the earth by tyrannous taxes and levies, and you would loot mine. Ha! Free my hands and I'll varnish this floor with your brains. Sotha grinned bleakly to see the rage of his kingly companions. All this, truthful though it be, is beside the point. Our plans are no concern of yours. Your responsibility is at an end when you sign this parchment, which is an abdication in favor of Prince Arpello of Pelia. We will give you arms and horse, and five thousand golden lunars, and escort you to the eastern frontier, setting me adrift where I was when I rode into Aquilonia to take service in her armies, except with the added burden of a trader's name. Conan's laugh was like the deep, short bark of a timber wolf. Apello, eh? I've had suspicions of that butcher of Pelia. Can you not even steal and pillage, frankly and honestly? But you must have an excuse, however thin. Apello claims a trace of royal blood, so you use him as an excuse for theft and a satrap to rule through. I'll see you in hell first. You're a fool, exclaimed Amalrus. You are in our hands, and we can take both crown and life at our pleasure. Conan's answer was neither kingly nor dignified, but characteristically instinctive in the man, whose barbaric nature had never been submerged in his adopted culture. He spat full in Amalrus' eyes. The king of Ophir leapt up with a scream of outraged fury, groping for his slender sword. Drawing it, he rushed at the Cimmerian, but Sotha intervened. Wait, your majesty, this man is my prisoner. Aside, wizard, shrieked Amalrus, maddened by the glare in the Cimmerian's blue eyes. Back, I say, roared Sotha, roused to awesome wrath. His lean hand came from his wide sleeve and cast a shower of dust into the Ophirian's contorted face. Amalrus cried out and staggered back, clutching at his eyes, the sword falling from his hand. He dropped limply on the divan, while the Kothian guards looked on stolidly and King Strabonus hurriedly gulped another goblet of wine, holding it with hands that trembled. Amalrus lowered his hands and shook his head violently, intelligence slowly sifting back into his grey eyes. I went blind, he growled. What did you do to me, wizard? Merely a gesture to convince you who was the real master, snapped Sotha. The mask of his formal pretense dropped, revealing the naked, evil personality of the man. Strabonus has learned his lesson. Let you learn yours. It was but a dust I found in a Stygian tomb which I flung into your eyes. If I brush out their sight again, 
I will leave you to grope in darkness for the rest of your life. Amalrus shrugged his shoulders, smiled whimsically and reached for a goblet, dissembling his fear and fury. A polished diplomat, he was quick to regain his poise. Suffer turned to Conan, who had stood imperturbably during the episode. At the wizard's gesture, the blacks laid hold of their prisoner and marched him behind Sotha, who led the way out of the chamber through an arched doorway into a winding corridor whose floor was of many hued mosaics, whose walls were inlaid with gold tissue and silver chasing, and from whose fretted arched ceiling swung golden censers, filling the corridor with dreamy perfumed clouds. They turned down a smaller corridor, done in jet and black jade, gloomy and awful, which ended at a brass door, over whose arch a human skull grinned horrifically. At this door stood a fat, repellent figure, dangling a bunch of keys, Sotha's chief eunuch, Chukali, of whom grisly tales were whispered, a man with whom a bestial lust for torture took the place of normal human passions. The brass door let onto a narrow stair that seemed to wind down into the very bowels of the hill on which the citadel stood. Down these stairs went the band, to halt at last at an iron door, the strength of which seemed unnecessary. Evidently it did not open on outer air, yet it was built as if to withstand the battering of mangonels and rams. Shukalai opened it, and as he swung back the ponderous portal, Conan noted the evident uneasiness among the back giants who guarded him. Nor did Shukalai seem altogether devoid of nervousness as he peered into the darkness beyond. Inside the great door there was a second barrier, composed of heavy steel bars. It was fastened by an ingenious bolt which had no lock and could be worked only from the outside. This bolt shot back. The grill slid into the wall. They passed through into a broad corridor, the floor, walls, and arch ceiling, of which seemed to be cut out of solid stone. Conan knew he was far underground, even below the hill itself. The darkness pressed in on the guardsmen's torches like a sentient, animate thing. They made the king fast to a ring in the stone wall. Above his head, in a niche in the wall, they placed a torch, so that he stood in a dim semicircle of light. The blacks were anxious to be gone. They muttered among themselves, and cast fearful glances at the darkness. Sotha motioned them out, and they filed through the door in stumbling haste, as if fearing that the darkness might take tangible form and spring upon their backs. Sotha turned toward Conan, and the king noticed uneasily that the wizard's eyes shone in the semi-darkness, and that his teeth much resembled the fangs of a wolf, gleaming whitely in the shadows. And so farewell, barbarian, mocked the sorcerer. I must ride to Shemar and the siege. In ten days I will be in your palace in Tamar, with my warriors. What word from you shall I say to your women, before I flay their dainty skins for scrolls, whereon to chronicle the triumphs of Sotholanti? Conan answered with a searing Cimmerian curse that would have burst the eardrums of an ordinary man, and Sotha laughed thinly and withdrew. Conan had a glimpse of his vulture-like figure through the thick-set bars as he slid home the grate. Then the heavy outer door clanged and silence fell like a pall. The lion strode through the halls of hell. Across his path grim shadows fell, of many a mowing nameless shape. Monsters with dripping jaws agape, the darkness shuddered with scream and yell. When the lion stalked through the halls of hell, Old Ballad. King Conan tested the ring in the wall and the chain that bound him. 
His limbs were free, but he knew that his shackles were beyond even his iron strength. The links of the chain were as thick as his thumb and were fastened to a band of steel about his waist, a band broad as his hand and half an inch thick. The sheer weight of his shackles would have slain a lesser man with exhaustion. The locks that held band and chain were massive affairs that a sledgehammer could hardly have dinted. As for the ring, evidently it went clear through the wall and was clinched on the other side. Conan cursed and panic surged through him as he glared into the darkness that pressed against the half-circle of light. All the superstitious dread of the barbarian slept in his soul, untouched by civilized logic. His primitive imagination peopled the subterranean darkness with grisly shapes. Besides, his reason told him that he had not been placed there merely for confinement. His captors had no reason to spare him. He had been placed in these pits for a definite doom. He cursed himself for his refusal of their offer, even while his stubborn manhood revolted at the thought, and he knew that were he taken forth and given another chance, his reply would be the same. He would not sell his subjects to the butcher, and yet it had been with no thought of anyone's gain but his own that he had seized the kingdom originally. Thus subtly does the instinct of sovereign responsibility enter even a red-handed plunderer sometimes. Conan thought of Sotha's last abominable threat and groaned in sick fury, knowing it was no idle boast. Men and women were to the wizard no more than the writhing insect is to the scientist. Soft white hands that had caressed him, red lips that had been pressed to his, dainty white bosoms that had quivered to his hot, fierce kisses to be stripped of their delicate skin, white as ivory and pink as young petals. From Conan's lips burst a yell so frightful and inhuman in its mad fury that a listener would have stared in horror to know that it came from a human throat. The shuddering echoes made him start and brought back his own situation vividly to the king. He glared fearsomely at the outer gloom and thought of the grisly tales he had heard of Sotha's necromantic cruelty, and it was with an icy sensation down his spine that he realized that these must be the very halls of horror named in shuddering legendary, the tunnels and dungeons wherein Sotha performed horrible experiments with beings human-bestial, and, it was whispered, demoniac, tampering blasphemously with the naked basic elements of life itself. Rumor said that the mad poet Rinaldo had visited these pits and been shown horrors by the wizard, and that the nameless monstrosities of which he hinted in his awful poem, The Song of the Pit, were no mere fantasies of a disordered brain. That brain had crashed to dust beneath Conan's battle-axe on the night the king had fought for his life, with the assassins the mad rhymer had led into the betrayed palace. But the shuddersome words of that grisly song still rang in the king's ears as he stood there in his chains. Even with the thought, the Cimmerian was frozen by a soft rustling sound, blood freezing in its implication. He tensed in an attitude of listening, painful in its intensity. An icy hand stroked his spine. It was the unmistakable sound of pliant scales, slithering softly over stone. Cold sweat beaded his skin, as beyond the ring of dim light he saw a vague and colossal form, awful even in its indistinctness. It reared upright, swaying slightly, and yellow eyes burned icily on him from the shadows. Slowly a huge, hideous, wedge-shaped head took form before his dilated eyes, and from the darkness oozed, in flowing scaly coils, the ultimate horror of reptilian development. It was a snake that dwarfed all Conan's previous ideas of snakes. 
Eighty feet it stretched from its pointed tail to its triangular head, which was bigger than that of a horse. In the dim light its scales glistened coldly, white as hoar-frost. Surely this reptile was one born and grown in darkness, yet its eyes were full of evil and sure sight. It looped its tightened coils in front of the captive, and the great head on the arching neck swayed a matter of inches from his face. Its forked tongue almost brushed his lips as it darted in and out, and its fetid odor made his senses reel with nausea. The great yellow eyes burned into his, and Conan gave back the glare of a trapped wolf. He fought against the mad impulse to grasp the great arching neck in his tearing hands. Strong beyond the comprehension of civilized man, he had broken the neck of a python in a fiendish battle on the Stygian coast in his corsair days. But this reptile was venomous. He saw the great fangs, a foot long, curved like scimitars. From them dripped a colorless liquid that he instinctively knew was death. He might conceivably crush that wedge-shaped skull with a desperate clenched fist, but he knew that at his first hint of movement, the monster would strike like lightning. It was not because of any logical reasoning process that Conan remained motionless, since reason might have told him, since he was doomed anyway, to goad the snake into striking and get it over with. It was the blind black instinct of self-preservation that held him rigid as a statue blasted out of iron. Now the great barrel reared up, and the head was poised high above his own as the monster investigated the torch. A drop of venom fell on his naked thigh, and the feel of it was like a white-hot dagger driven into his flesh. Red jets of agony shot through Conan's brain, yet he held himself immovable. Not by the twitching of a muscle or the flicker of an eyelash did he betray the pain of the hurt that left a scar he bore to the day of his death. The serpent swayed above him, as if seeking to ascertain whether there were in truth life in this figure which stood so death-like still. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, the outer door, all but invisible in the shadows, clanged stridently. The serpent, suspicious as all its kind, whipped about with a quickness incredible for its bulk, and vanished with a long-drawn slithering down the corridor. The door swung open and remained open. The grill was withdrawn, and a huge dark figure was framed in the glow of torches outside. The figure glided in, pulling the grill partly to behind it, leaving the bolt poised. As it moved into the light of the torch over Conan's head, the king saw that it was a gigantic black man, stark naked, bearing in one hand a huge sword and in the other a bunch of keys. The black spoke in a seacoast dialect, and Conan replied. He had learned the jargon while a corsair on the coasts of Kush. Long have I wished to meet you, Amra. The black gave Conan the name Amra the Lion, by which the Sumerian had been known to the Kushites in his piratical days. The slave's woolly skull split in an animal-like grin, showing white tusks, but his eyes glinted redly in the torchlight. I have dared much for this meeting. Look, the keys to your chains. I stole them from Shukalai. What will you give me for them? He dangled the keys in front of Conan's eyes. Ten thousand golden lunars, answered the king quickly new hope surging fiercely in his breast. Not enough, cried the black, a ferocious exultation shining on his ebon countenance. Not enough for the risks I take. Sotha's pets might come out of the dark and eat me, and if Shukalai finds out I stole his keys, he'll hang me up by my, well, what will you give me? Fifteen thousand lunars and a palace in Poitan, offered the king. 
The black yelled and stamped in a frenzy of barbaric gratification. More, he cried. Offer me more. What will you give me? You black dog. A red mist of fury swept across Conan's eyes. Were I free, I'd give you a broken back. Did Shukalai send you here to mock me? Shukalai knows nothing of my coming, white man, answered the black, craning his thick neck to peer into Conan's savage eyes. I know you from of old, since the days when I was a chief among a free people, before the Stygians took me and sold me into the north. Do you not remember the sack of a Bombay when your sea wolves swarmed in? Before the palace of King Ajaga, you slew a chief, and a chief fled from you. It was my brother who died. It was I who fled. I demand of you a blood price, Amra. Free me and I'll pay you your weight in gold pieces, growled Conan. The red eyes glittered. The white teeth flashed wolfishly in the torchlight. Ah, you white dog. You are like all your race. But to a black man gold can never pay for blood. The price I ask is your head. The last word was a many ackle shriek that sent the echoes shivering. Conan tensed, unconsciously straining against his shackles in his abhorrence of dying like a sheep. Then he was frozen by a greater horror. Over the black shoulder he saw a vague, horrific form swaying in the darkness. Sotha will never know, laughed the black fiendishly, too engrossed in his gloating triumph to take heed of anything else, too drunk with hate to know that death swayed behind his shoulder. He will not come into the vaults until the demons have torn your bones from their chains. I will have your head, Amra. He braced his knotted legs like ebon columns and swung up the massive sword in both hands, his great black muscles rolling and cracking in the torchlight. And at that instant, the titanic shadow behind him darted down and out, and the wedge-shaped head smote with an impact that re-echoed down the tunnels. Not a sound came from the thick, blubbery lips that flew wide in fleeting agony. With a thud of the stroke, Conan saw the life go out of the wide black eyes with the suddenness of a candle blown out. The blow knocked the great black body clear across the corridor, and horribly the gigantic sinuous shape whipped around it in glistening coils that hid it from view, and the snap and splintering of bones came plainly to Conan's ears. Then something made his heart leap madly. The sword and the keys had flown from the black's hands to crash and jangle on the stone, and the keys lay almost at the king's feet. He tried to bend to them, but the chain was too short. Almost suffocated by the mad pounding of his heart, he slipped one foot from its sandal and gripped them with his toes. Drawing his foot up, he grasped them fiercely, barely stifling the yell of ferocious exultation that rose instinctively to his lips. An instant's fumbling with the huge locks and he was free. He caught up the fallen sword and glared about. Only empty darkness met his eyes, into which the serpent had dragged a mangled, tattered object that only faintly resembled a human body. Conan turned to the open door. A few quick strides brought him to the threshold. A squeal of high-pitched laughter shrilled through the vaults, and the grill shot home under his very fingers. The bolt crashed down. Through the bars peered a face like a fiendishly mocking carven gargoyle, Shukalai the eunuch, who had followed his stolen keys. Surely he did not, in his gloating, see the sword in the prisoner's hand. With a terrible curse, Conan struck as a cobra strikes. The great blade hissed between the bars, and Shukalai's laughter broke in a death scream. 
The fat eunuch bent at the middle, as if bowing to his killer, and crumpled like tallow, his pudgy hands clutching vainly at his spilling entrails. Conan snarled in savage satisfaction, but he was still a prisoner. His keys were futile against the bolt which could be worked only from the outside. His experienced touch told him the bars were hard as the sword. An attempt to hew his way to freedom would only spin to his one weapon. Yet he found dents on those adamantine bars like the marks of incredible fangs, and wondered with an involuntary shudder what nameless monsters had so terribly assailed the barriers. Regardless, there was but one thing for him to do, and that was to seek some other outlet. Taking the torch from the niche, he set off down the corridor, sword in hand. He saw no sign of the serpent or its victim, only a great smear of blood on the stone floor. Darkness stalked on noiseless feet about him, scarcely driven back by his flickering torch. On either hand he saw dark openings, but he kept to the main corridor, watching the floor ahead of him carefully, lest he fall into some pit. And suddenly he heard the sound of a woman, weeping piteously. Another of Sotha's victims, he thought, cursing the wizard anew and turning aside, followed the sound down a smaller tunnel, dank and damp. The weeping grew nearer as he advanced, and lifting his torch, he made out a vague shape in the shadows. Stepping closer, he halted in sudden horror at the amorphic bulk which sprawled before him. Its unstable outlines somewhat suggested an octopus, but its malformed tentacles were too short for its size, and its substance was a quaking, jelly-like stuff which made him physically sick to look at. From among this loathsome, jellied mass reared up a frog-like head, and he was frozen with nauseated horror to realize that the sound of weeping was coming from those obscene, blubbery lips. The noise changed to an abominable, high-pitched tittering as the great, unstable eyes of the monstrosity rested on him, and it hitched its quaking bulk toward him. He backed away and fled up the tunnel, not trusting his sword. The creature might be composed of terrestrial matter, but it shook his very soul to look upon it, and he doubted the power of man-made weapons to harm it. For a short distance, he heard it flopping and floundering after him, screaming with horrible laughter. The unmistakably human note in its mirth almost staggered his reason. It was exactly such laughter as he had heard bubble obscenely from the fat lips of the salacious women of Shadizar City of Wickedness when captive girls were stripped naked on the public auction block. By what hellish arts had Sotha brought this unnatural being into life, Conan felt vaguely that he had looked on blasphemy against the eternal laws of nature. He ran toward the main corridor, but before he reached it, he crossed a sort of small square chamber where two tunnels crossed. As he reached this chamber, he was flashingly aware of some small squat bulk on the floor ahead of him. Then, before he could check his flight or swerve aside, his foot struck something yielding that squalled shrilly, and he was precipitated headlong, the torch flying from his hand and being extinguished as it struck the stone floor. Half stunned by his fall, Conan rose and groped in the darkness. His sense of direction was confused, and he was unable to decide in which direction lay the main corridor. He did not look for the torch, as he had no means of rekindling it. His groping hands found the openings of the tunnels, and he chose one at random. How long he traversed it in utter darkness, he never knew, but suddenly his barbarian's instinct of near peril halted him short. He had the same feeling he had had when standing on the brink of great precipices in the darkness. Dropping to all fours, he edged forward, 
and presently his outflung hand encountered the edge of a well into which the tunnel floor dropped abruptly. As far down as he could reach the sides fell away sheerly, dank and slimy to his touch. He stretched out an arm in the darkness and could barely touch the opposite edge with the point of his sword. He could leap across it then, but there was no point in that. He had taken the wrong tunnel and the main corridor lay somewhere behind him. Even as he thought this, he felt a faint movement of air. A shadowy wind rising from the well stirred his black mane. Conan's skin crawled. He tried to tell himself that this well connected somehow with the outer world, but his instincts told him it was a thing unnatural. He was not merely inside the hill. He was below it, far below the level of the city streets. How then could an outer wind find its way into the pits and blow up from below? A faint throbbing pulsed on that ghostly wind like drums beating far, far below. A strong shudder shook the king of Aquilonia. He rose to his feet and backed away, and as he did something floated up out of the well. What it was, Conan did not know. He could see nothing in the darkness, but he distinctly felt a presence, an invisible, intangible intelligence which hovered malignly near him. Turning, he fled the way he had come. Far ahead, he saw a tiny red spark. He headed for it, and long before he thought to have reached it, he caromed headlong into a solid wall and saw the spark at his feet. It was his torch, the flame extinguished, but the end a glowing coal. Carefully he took it up and blew upon it, fanning it into flame again. He gave a sigh as the tiny blaze leaped up. He was back in the chamber where the tunnels crossed, and his sense of direction came back. He located the tunnel by which he had left the main corridor, and even as he started toward it, his torch flame flickered wildly, as if blown upon by unseen lips. Again he felt a presence, and he lifted his torch, glaring about. He saw nothing, yet he sensed, somehow, an invisible, bodiless thing that hovered in the air, dripping slimily and mouthing obscenities that he could not hear, but was in some instinctive way aware of. He swung viciously with his sword, and it felt as if he were cleaving cobwebs. A cold horror shook him then, and he fled down the tunnel, feeling a foul burning breath on his naked back as he ran. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 